This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Taryn Winterbrill, host of Bestseller TV on C-Suite Radio. On this show, I sit down with leading business authors to find out what makes their books stand out from the crowd. With thousands of new business books and titles being published each year, we try to make it just a little bit easier for you to decide which ones are worth the read. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Bestseller TV. I'm Taryn Winterbrill. We're here with Governor David Patterson. He is the author of Black, Blind, and In Charge, a story of visionary leadership and overcoming adversity. Governor, it's great to have you with us. Well, Taryn, thanks for having me. So first off, you know, love the title. It grabs you, right? You just, you want to know more. Why write a book, Governor? Well, I wrote the book, but I didn't write the title. My friend Simon Mills did. And uh, we just could never think of a better one. So uh, I've never heard anyone hear the title that wasn't somewhat curious about the book. No, it does. It definitely grabs you. Also curious with, you know, the amount you've gone through in your journey in politics and politics aside, how did you decide what to include in the book? Because I'd imagine that there was some left on the cutting room floor or maybe not. There are some things left on the cutting room floor and, you know, it might be down the road I'll address them uh, either by writing about them or in a different fashion. I just uh, turned on my MP3 and just started uh, dictating and uh, just sort of told the stories that I thought were uh, particularly important. But there certainly were a a few issues that I, I wish I'd had a chance to address. Right. Do you have any favorite anecdotes that stick out? Because there's a bunch that I read that you know make you chuckle. Because you experience all different sorts of emotions as you as you go through the motions with each chapter. But well, what sticks out for you, Governor Patterson? A number of things stick out, but meeting you uh, makes me think <laughs> of uh, one of the individuals who's in the book whose name is Taryn. Yes. She's a young woman uh, who lived in my apartment complex, who I met on the subway. And she wanted to go to medical school, but she had... Uh, contracted lupus and she was told by doctors that she could never be near that amount of germs and bacteria so she was looking for a new career and I said well look while you're looking since you live so close to me I'm just out of office and I don't have a staff anymore right. if you'd like to travel with me I'll pay you right so Taryn and I show up at the wake one evening for a man uh, named uh, Calvin Copeland he owned a famous restaurant in Harlem and he just was so nice to me and he really cared about me and almost treated me as if I was part of his family. And he barely ever charged me when I ate there. Right. <laughs> so he asked that I give the testimonial at his uh, funeral, which was held in Benta's funeral home at 140th Street and Adam Clayton Paul Jr. Boulevard in Harlem. Right. So Taryn and I show up there and we go in and we're standing around and someone finishes speaking and the minister says to me, you know, this other person is going to speak and then you can go next. Right. And uh, while the other person's speaking, this woman comes up to me and says, oh, Governor, I'm so upset. This is so hard for me to speak here. This is so, too much for me. Can I speak before you? Right. So I let her speak before me and I'm standing around waiting for her to uh, 
to finish and I'm daydreaming, but I, then I heard her say, I couldn't get to sleep last Wednesday night. I was up until four o'clock in the morning. And then I, when I finally got to sleep, they called me at five o'clock to say that my sister was dead. And she keeps going on talking about her sister. <laughs> right. So I turned to Taryn and I said, Taryn, <laughs> who's in the casket? She goes, a woman. Right. I said, we're supposed to be at Calvin Copeland's funeral. If you're scoring at home, she's a man. And, right. and uh, she says, yeah, I've been thinking about that the past few minutes. I said, you're thinking about that? Right. When are you going to tell me about it? So <laughs> I back out of the church, uh, out of the room, and we go down the hall in the funeral home, and as soon as I walk through the door, they say, oh, we're so glad Governor Patterson is here. We were just about to, to end the to service. To wrap it up, right. Uh, Governor Patterson, come up here and talk about Mr. Copeland. We know you were so close to him. And I go up on the stage, but I haven't been thinking about Mr. Copeland the last 10 minutes. Right. I've been thinking about how embarrassed I would have been if I'd gotten up in the other venue. And so I looked at the audience and I followed uh, an instruction that someone gave me about speaking in front of an audience. I said, a funny thing happened to me on the way to the funeral tonight. And I told him <laughs> the story and he practically had to drag his family out of the aisles. They laughed so much. Laughing so hard. And right? they told me, you know, in the spirit of Calvin Copeland, we are so happy that we ended this service on such a humorous note, even if it was at your expense. Yes, yes. He definitely added levity to the situation. It's just so interesting hearing you describe this anecdote, having read it, um, because it's exactly how I imagined you saying it, kind of this idea of you saying to Taryn, well, what were you going to tell me what you were yeah, thinking? exactly. And of course, I couldn't raise my voice because we were in a, in a funeral service. <laughs> right. It was like there was nothing going for you and you had to figure out. And then finally it all kind of came together. So I'm curious, what was the reason? Or is there a particular reason for including that anecdote other than humor? Or was there a lesson to say, hey, you always want to verbalize. If you're thinking something and you're not sure, share it with your partner. Well, I think at the root of a lot of these stories is that if I was perfectly sighted, I would have seen the casket before I got to the front to make the speech. True, right. And what I think I was sort of uh, addressing is a fear I've had that something's going on that I don't know about. In other uh -huh. words, that, you know, there's something, something in a room. So, you know, I tell the story about the time I helped the woman get into law school and it's the middle of December and she was the daughter of a friend of mine and she comes to this restaurant and if she covered 12% of her body when she took her her coat off, it was um, a lot. Right. And so I'm sitting there and, and someone comes up and says, hi, David, how are you? And I said, I'm fine, and you are? And she said, I am someone who was married to you for 20 years. And I'm like, oh, no. Not right. only did I not recognize my former wife, but my former wife was probably wondering what I'm doing with a woman who looks like she's a third my age. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. I, I remember that one too, and that's exactly how I pictured you saying it. Um, you know, there's so much to get to. There's so many anecdotes, but something else that sticks out, you went tie shopping with Arnold Schwarzenegger. The governors have an organization, National Governors Conference, and they have these workshops. And in the workshop, the agreement is there'll always be one Republican and one Democrat. In right. this case, it's Governor Schwarzenegger from California and Governor Corzine from New Jersey. And they're going to talk about the environment, which was Governor Schwarzenegger's favorite issue to work on. Uh, Governor uh, Corzine tells me 10 minutes before the workshop begins, listen, all I'm going to do is sit here and be the Democrat. You need, can you take my place? I've got something I've really got to do. Right. So I go and I sit there, but Governor Schwarzenegger never comes in. And then the staff comes up and says, it's four o'clock. It's time to start the program. Well, I don't even know what the program is. Haven't read it. 
And uh, I said, I don't know what the program is. Here it is. Like, I'm supposed to read this stuff. Right. So I have to sit there for nearly an hour and a half with people telling me who's next. And, and someone spoke, and I said, oh, by the way, um, uh, who are you affiliated with? I'm secretary of the uh, Environmental Protection Agency. I'm like, oh, I'm just... I'm just suffering. Right. Finally, Governor Schwarzenegger comes in and he sits down, and I've always been a big fan of his. And uh, he looks at me, and staff has told him what happened, and he says, I am so sorry. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, you are sorry, all right. Yes. <laughs> and so it just goes to show you, someone can be an idol until they've done some, something to annoy you, and then they become very human. Right. But Governor Schwarzenegger felt so badly about me being put in that position that he befriended me and later he invited me to come to one of his environmental um, conferences in uh, California and I went to it and um, I got there early so he told me he was going to shop for ties but I like to come along with him. Sure. It's nothing like being in a department store uh, you know, with, uh, right. with Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, buying ties. I can imagine. I can't actually. What, what is that like? <laughs> well, one thing, uh, when people see him in person, he's not nearly as tall oh, really? as he, he looks in, 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 the, in the movies. Yeah. I mean, he may be the Terminator, but it's kind of like Alan Ladd and uh, Shane. Uh -huh. They had to dig a ditch for the, uh, I can't, can't remember the co-stars, but they wanted him looking down on her when he, when he kissed her. Uh -huh. And, um, but he is a very unique person with a lot of interests and, um, uh, and, and really was a great friend to me. Yeah, yeah, and you're wearing a great tie, so maybe the, uh, <laughs> today. Maybe it rubbed off. <laughs> maybe it rubbed off. Um, you know, there's so much that sticks out uh, in the book. You know, there was a quote uh, from Deepak Chopra. He's been an influence on you. You say, you know, at the start of the book, you'll get to read about all of my conspiracies of improbability. So, curious, Governor, Deepak Chopra, he's had an impact on you, and would you say your whole life has been a conspiracy of improbabilities? Is that accurate? I, I would say so. Okay. Uh, Deepak Chopra, of all of the books that he's written, the one that I find most interesting is the one people least know. In that book, that he talks about the fact that everything basically happens for a reason, that everything is improbable until it actually happens. Yeah. And therefore, through thought and through power of... Um, intention, you have a lot more control over your destiny uh, than you do. Uh, huh. So uh, I commend to all who are watching today to read the book, The Spontaneous Fulfillment of Desire, because of all of these sort of self-help books, it tells you exactly what to do. I mean, yeah. there's, a, there's a program basically in the book, and if you follow it, uh, as I did, you will be shocked at the coincidences that occur yeah. and when they occur. Like I mentioned the book is so comprehensive because it, it, it really just dives into so many parts of your life. Um, a lot of people may not know, we should say, if it isn't obvious already, but you were, you're the former governor of New York. You were on track to be a lawyer. You were working in the DA's office. Was politics ever a part of your plan? I mean, a lot of people may not know that your dad was in politics. He was a senator, a former secretary of state of New York. So was the, was the goal always politics, Governor, or it sort of fell into your lap? I think I was very interested in politics and very interested in law because of my admiration of my father. Right. And he definitely was an influence on me. Um, but the politics for me was that I graduated high school early. No one really complimented me as much as they said, you're a chip off the old block.
I got into Columbia University, it was the fourth most difficult uh, college to get into in the country. Right. And I was told I was a chip off the old block. And then I had an incident during college that really caused me to lose my self-esteem and I was out of school for a while and no one said I was a chip off the old block. It's sort of like I'm a big disappointment. Yeah. So the problem for offspring of very uh, successful government officials or right. political leaders is that everything you do that's right is expected. Anything you do that wrong, does that wrong becomes a news story. Like yeah. uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. failed the bar exam on his first try. A lot of people did, like me. Uh -huh. And uh, But his was on the front page of the Daily News. Right. So what I would say is I wasn't totally into it. I thought I might want to go into some different area. I was in the DA's office and then um, I worked for David Dinkins, who would become the first African-American mayor of New York City. I worked for him back in 1985 when he was running for an office known as Borough President of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And I went to speak before a group one night and apparently people in the room liked what I had to say, even though they sure weren't acting that way at the time. So when a Senate seat became available in the New York State Senate, I was approached by Percy Sutton, who was a very well-known political leader in New York City himself, and he suggested I run for the seat to get experience. He said, when you run for office, you become an immediate small business owner. You become a human resource person because you have to hire staff. You have to write position papers, so you have to improve your writing skills and your speaking skills because you have to speak in front of audiences. You're also going to have to debate the other candidates and manage your staff. And he must have cited three or four other attributes that you would develop doing this. Mm -hmm. And he said, I feel that if you run, someone will notice you. Uh, you won't win, but <laughs> someone will notice you and uh, it'll be great for your career. So I did exactly what he asked me to do. The only thing he got wrong is that I did win. C-Suite Radio. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Question, when you look back at your career, Governor, is there something you would have done differently, if you could? Oh, I would have done a lot of things differently. Yeah, what's um, the one thing, would you say? I, you know, I've watched those old biographies with Mike Wallace, and yeah. people say, if I had to live my life again, I'd never do anything differently, but right. well, I certainly would. One uh, thing that comes to mind is, when I became Governor, I made the mistake that I was told later that first year uh, corporate executives make. You live crisis to crisis. You always attack the crises uh -huh. and not fulfilling what your mission is. 
And uh, so when I came into office, obviously there was a huge uh, budget deficit that no one really knew about, but it materialized in the first few months of my term. And there was, it was also a leadership crisis because many of the governor's staff left with him. Many of the people I wish had left stayed. And what I needed to do was what was written in the book Good to Great by an author named Jim Collins back in 1996. And he admonished new leaders that if you want to really make your mission come true, you have to clear the place out and work with the people who are about your mission. And I didn't get reminded of that until I was leaving office and I invited a childhood friend of mine to stay in the mansion with uh, my family. And she brought her husband who was a corporate coach. And he and I had this conversation and he said, you know, the only problem that you had is the conversation you had with me tonight, you should have had with people the first week that you were in office. Uh huh. Gotcha. Well, hindsight's twenty twenty, as they say. So one extreme to the other, things you would have done over, but what are you most proud of when you look back at your political career? I think I'm most proud of the fact that when I thought something was right, I did not assess the political ramifications. So when I was governor, I put a tax on sodas. Mm -hmm. uh, there is nothing healthy about a soda. You could put a tax on chocolate bars, but chocolate, because of the cocoa, has a health value. Right. And I soon realized that this wasn't going to pass the legislature, but I thought that as President Woodrow Wilson once said, sometimes the publication of issues is as important as the legislation. So after I did that, a couple years later, Mayor Bloomberg tried to reduce the amount of sodas you could buy at a time. Right. And he did a number of um, health-minded um, experiments in his administration that were very similar. Uh, so there were times when I took a position that really wasn't popular but I thought the challenge was to educate the public and make it popular. So issues such as the hate crimes bill, I wrote that in 1987, it wasn't passed, and it was passed under an author that wasn't me in the mm. year 2000. But during that time, I think people changed their minds about whether you could add to the penalty of a crime that you picked out the victim because of their race, religion, national origin, sex, sexual orientation, age, or disability. Mm. And if given the chance, would you ever run for public office again? If given the chance, I would run as far away from that as possible. Yeah. So you would run, just run away? Yes. Um, <laughs> Why so? Well, I think that um, I serve my purpose. I think that I could be helpful in advisory capacities, but the wear and tear on the personal psyche and even the health of uh, people in the highest um, ledger of leadership is unrelenting. Yeah. And it was very difficult on me, it was very difficult on my family. Uh, we didn't really get a chance to prepare since we came into office so quickly. Right. And, um, you know, I certainly uh, have had to address some of the anxiety that I felt but was able to muffle until the time I came out of office and almost as soon as I came out of office I started to really feel the uh, damage that it had uh, done just in terms of the way I live my life.
Right, right. It is, I'm always in awe of public servants, especially, you know, public figures in politics, because it is 24-7. You really never, do you ever really get a day off? And even when you do have a, a you know, quote unquote day off, right? You never re can really You check don't get out. a day off, and sometimes you really shouldn't be sleeping. There was a terrible plane right. crash in a place called Clarence, New York. And it happened uh, while I was asleep in the mansion. Right. And when I woke up, now, admittedly, somebody should have awakened me. Mm. But when I woke up, I heard about this, and I'm already getting blamed because I'm not in the Buffalo area where the accident occurred. And it, it was frustrating right. because uh, how do you get blamed for something that went on while you're asleep? Yeah. Right, but it, but it, it's part of the job, right? It's, you're you're always to blame, right? I mean, it's you, you, like where were you, and you should have been there. But exactly, it's it's an all-encompassing job. Um, you know, we haven't even touched upon you know the scandal that got you into office. But the book is so terrific because you go into such detail of what it was like to be in your shoes, literally overnight. You're in a matter of moments. You're governor, right? You're lieutenant governor, and 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 it, it happens, and you have no choice but to but to run with it. And it's just it's just fascinating to get your you know, candid perspective. What, what do you want people to know about that time? What that was like for you? I think that uh, that time period uh, certainly alienated me to, uh, and created trust issues for me. Okay. Because in the, in the very beginning of finding this out, there were people who knew about it that should have told me. Oh, really? But had, uh, out of loyalty to the governor, not me, who was now going to become the governor. I don't know about this until theoretically an hour before the governor was going to resign. Right. He actually didn't resign. His wife forbid him to, and it took a couple of days for her to see that he had to resign, and he did. But in addition to what she wanted him to do, it gave me a chance to start organizing. But I felt almost as if I was in one of those movies like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, mm -hmm. because everyone I thought had sanity did something that was insane. Right. As soon as they heard there was gonna be a change of power. Right. Someone called me up and said to me, you know, the Albany District Attorney is doing an investigation of the governor. You should see what's in that investigation report. Hmm. And I said, you know, I guess down the road I'll, I'll talk to him about it. Well, this person decided to save me the trouble and went to the Albany District Attorney's Office and demanded that he give them the report, at which point the Albany District Attorney called the state controller, Tom DiNapoli, who came to my house and told me how angry the district attorney is. And I said to DiNapoli, I haven't been sworn in yet and I'm about to get arrested. Right, right. So I had to write an apology note to the Albany district attorney. Then there were people, uh, um, you know, jockeying for position. Uh, yeah. There was a staff member of mine. Uh, her significant other was a lobbyist and he drove his car and he had it outside the office and wanted to come in and talk to me. Right. Um, uh, someone told me there was a very significant leadership position that Spitzer was going to give him in June of that year, which was three or four months away, right. and wanted to know if I would honor it. I said I would honor it and started putting together the transition so this person could take the job until the person that had the job said, there is no deal, the governor's office never do it, knew about it, and yeah. I never knew about it. Wow. And I had to apologize to him. Yeah. So by the time I'm sworn in, I have been riddled with this kind yeah. of vanity that uh, so many people just sh shared yeah. and their willingness to lie, cheat, and steal to get what they wanted. Right. And I think it drove me into a more internal sort of um, 
resolution that I wasn't going to get anybody's cooperation. Right. No, it is. I mean, and the book goes into detail. It just kind of sets the scene of what you were sort of literally thrown into and immersed in and everything and the chaos surrounding you um, while trying to lead. It's, it's really a terrific read. There's so much to get out of it. But I'm curious, what is your hope that readers take away from the book? Well, I certainly hope that uh, people understand that their capacity to achieve is probably a lot greater than they think it is. Mm and that a person like myself was much different, I think, than anyone else that had ever uh, uh, governed uh, the state. I was actually on Social Security at one point no because I had a legal disability and I wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And um, I was going to law school, but there was no way I could work and go to law school at the same time. I, I couldn't have done it. So because of Social Security, I was able to do that. But as a Social Security recipient, I had to go to the Social Security office, which taught me a lot about how to treat uh, constituents when they came into my office. Hmm. And, uh, and, you know, there was certainly times when, had things not gone the way they did go, I could see myself in a, in a very minuscule position, just basically surviving. Right. I think I am more lucky than I was uh, good at things. And, but people who are cast in that same place that I was should know that they don't have to be there. Their, their creativity and effort can get them out of it. And so that's one thing. And perhaps the, the uh, governmental issue that um, I would want people to recognize is that last I checked, New York State did not fall into the ocean while I was governor. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, we uh, dug ourselves out of a $40 billion debt that the state had before I ever even got there. Right. So uh, sometimes in assessing what experience did you have, what offices did you hold, uh, it's really the commitment, the organization, and the compassion for your fellow uh, residents of a state that will determine uh, who is a successful or unsuccessful governor uh, rather than uh, all kinds of headlines and, and distractions mm -hmm. and um, basically superficial impressions. Right. And just on a final note, to bring it back to Deepak Chopra, because you said you're a believer in everything happens for a reason. What was the reason why you think you know, all this happened to you, right? Because if you think about it, sliding doors, if that scandal wouldn't have happened, perhaps you would have remained lieutenant governor and who knows. So was there a reason for all of this, in your opinion? Well, I think uh, it was a lesson for me. Mm -hmm. Because actually, had I believed in myself a little more, I would have been better prepared when I became governor. I think for uh, a couple of months, I was sort of looking over my shoulder thinking, someone's going to come in one day and say, good job, you know, thanks for holding it together for us, but uh, <laughs> right. you can go now. Right, yeah. Uh, but in my last year, I think I really learned how to do it. They yeah. say it takes a governor a year to adjust to the office. I think in my case it took two years because as much as I hate to admit it, my disability was of an extreme um, difficulty for me at that time because now I'm in office, I'm governor, and I'm not even sure who all my staff people are. I don't recognize them. Someone spoke to me at an event once and made a suggestion. I said, look, how do we get in touch with you? And he said, I work for you, governor. And I'm like, <laughs> oh yeah, just, just testing you. you right, know? right, right, just making sure you were listening. Yeah, right. and, that's and funny. so I think that's the, uh, I think 
the, the, the lesson of becoming governor for me was that I should have been uh, at least uh, emotionally and also uh, substantively more prepared than I actually was. Well, Governor, the book is terrific. It's so comprehensive, and we're so happy that you decided to to share it with everybody, with the public, um, because it's uh, it's it's no easy feat to to write about all this. So uh, we really enjoyed it. Thank you. I waited uh, a long time to do it. I did not want it to be a book to settle scores or to manifest my own anger, but I think now I can actually laugh at some of the things that were frustrating at that time. And it was great to discuss them with you. Yeah, and I didn't even get to mention, you talk about how humor is so important and you've really, you know, you've kept your sense of humor throughout and it's evident in the book. So congratulations again and we hope to see you back maybe for the next one. Uh, if I have a next one, I'll come right back here. Great, we'll hold you to it. If you'd like more information on the book, just check out our website at csweetbookclub.com. That's c-sweetbookclub.com. I'm Taryn Winterbrill. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time right here on Bestseller TV. Like what you just heard, visit c-sweetradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.